Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Kayla. And you're listening to True Crime Exposed. Where me and my mom will bring you a new case discussion every week. We also advocate for victims through interviews with family, experts, survivors, and more. True Crime Exposed won the Post Register's Reader's Choice Best Local Podcast of 2022. And I just wanted to say thank you to all of you guys who voted and who have supported us. It, I was a absolute nightmare on social media, bugging everyone to vote for me every day for like a month. But I really appreciate you guys. It paid off me being so annoying to all of you. Seriously, I'm just so grateful though to be appreciated and like get this little award for this podcast that we're working so hard on and you know that I have a big vision for and that I'm really trying to do some good in this world with. So I I just really appreciate you. Thank you for voting us in. I'm super happy that we got this opportunity before we're even one whole year into the podcast. So wanted to make sure that I tell you all I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We have a lot of big things coming up this year. So thank you so much for getting us off to a good start as we get close to, you know, our True Crime Exposed one year anniversary. I love you guys. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. With that, are you ready? for today's case. All right, so today's case is super bad. So I'm gonna put a warning at the beginning because it's actually probably the worst like torture case I've ever come across. Like the things that were done are really, really bad. Why do you do these? It's a case out of Japan. <laughs> so I just thought it needed to be shared. It's really sad though, so. If it it's really really violent, it's some really bad sexual assault. Ugh, so I just wanted great. to let people know that here at the forefront. Yeah, can I bow I out? Not good. <laughs> I know you never can. <laughs> Everyone else is warned, and then she's never warned. She's just forced. She agreed to this. No, she beforehand. forces me to, even if I don't want to <laughs> hear it. Uh, you agreed when you agreed to do this podcast <laughs> that you unfortunately could not skip things, but other people can if this is just too much for them. I thought we anyway. did a torture case last week on those kids. Oh, that was so sad. Yeah, that was a really bad case of like abuse and neglect. This is just, this is like so beyond like comprehension what happens in this case. So, Ugh. yeah. All right, let's I know. go. Let's get into it. So I'm taking you back to the late 1980s over in Japan. There's a 19-year-old woman who has been in constant contact with the police because in December of 1988, she had been raped by a group of boys. And although she survived this attack, she was left with an overwhelming amount of trauma. And she wanted to see the people who did this to her taken down, put behind bars and off the streets where they could not hurt other women. As police narrowed down their investigation, they start hearing a few of the same names over and over. The names of these boys who were in the area to gang, who were known in the area to gang rape women. Police are shocked the first time they hear this tale, but the more it's repeated, the more their sights narrow on these young men. Especially because they're also being told that the boys who could be responsible also have ties to the Yakuza. This is a Japanese organized crime group that's traced back to as early as 1612. So kind of like the mob, like a Japanese mob. And I guess it was really big, like people in the United States knew about it. A lot of people in Japan were worried about these Yakuza people. It's still an organized crime group that I believe is like running today, but never heard of them. like a far. Yeah, maybe on a far less violent scale, but people in Japan definitely know like what this gang is about they have operated for more than 300 years and they've been tied to drug trafficking control in japan as well as other organized crime and violence and whatnot 
It's after police had heard multiple people tie certain names to the rape of that 19-year-old woman that they searched a couple local men's homes where they find a pair of women's underwear. This prompts police to bring in a couple of these boys for questioning. And with that, they pick up Joe Ogura and Hiroshi Miyano. Each of them are taken into their own separated interrogation rooms, and they're asked about the rape. Like, what do you know about this? People say you guys are known for doing these things. What can you tell me about that night? So you keep saying that they're boys. Are they boys? Are they adults? Yeah, some of some of them are young. Okay. Yeah, these are young people. Some 18, some 16, 17. So the boys aren't admitting to any crime. Like, nope, wasn't us. I don't know what happened to that girl. It's only when police bring up another crime that they can see a shift in Hiroshi's demeanor. What what the police had brought up was this murder of a mother and her child that had been killed. But they weren't actually asking questions surrounding like the details of this murder, murder, who it was, anything like that. And so it was weird that the boys seemed so nervous about this topic because police really are just looking at them for this rape. I think they're just bringing up that there was a recent murder maybe to scare them into thinking, oh, like maybe they'll think that we did this murder, so we'll just admit to the rape. Police don't actually think they murdered this mom and her child. But then Hiroshi Miyano is shaking in his seat, thinking that his buddy Joe Ogura had confessed to another crime they had committed. So he says, fine, I'll admit to something, but can I get a deal? Can I be given a lighter sentence if I'm the first to talk? Now, police are really intrigued, so they don't agree to a deal, but they do encourage Hiroshi to continue. And he sighs when he tells the police to go to the Kodo area of Tokyo. There's a cement company there, and on one of the parked trucks, there will be a drum barrel. It's filled with cement, and that's where you will find a girl. Police are taken back. I mean, again, they're questioning these men about a rape, but now one of them is admitting to knowing where a body is. With that, they're off to search, fully expecting to find the body of that mother, and hopefully nearby the body of her child as well. The drum barrel containing the body of a woman is soon discovered after this admission by Hiroshi. The concrete has to be carefully removed from the body it was encasing, and immediately, examiners could see that this person had been through severe torment. Her face was unrecognizable, her skin was burned. This woman was also found to be pregnant regardless of the horrific injuries in her uterus and in her genital areas, including glass shards found inside her rectum from an orange glass bottle. But through fingerprinting, it's discovered that this is actually not a woman at all. It's a 16-year-old girl. This is not the murder victim police were referring to when questioning Hiroshi Miyano and Joe Ogura. This was 16-year-old Junko Furucha. And she's a teenager that no one was looking for anymore. Back in November of 1988, Junko's parents had gone to the police about their missing daughter who never came home from work one night. But then Junko had called home within the first few days of her disappearance, and she tells her parents she's not missing. She just ran away. She wasn't happy at home. They're putting too much pressure on her. She didn't want to live with them anymore. And so she asked them to have the police stop searching for her. Because again, she's not missing. She's just not coming home. This breaks her parents' hearts. They wanted their daughter to be happy. They didn't mean to push her away. So they abide by her wishes and everyone stops searching for the missing girl. None of them knew at that time that Junko's phone call home was a forced call. Mm, That's what I was wondering. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That was not what she wanted to do, which is so sad. These people threatened her to make this call to her parents to call off the police she didn't run away she's not staying with a friend she was actually kidnapped Uh and like to call and tell your parents that and you like they probably sound sad she can tell she's hurting them telling them like she doesn't want to be around them and she's just forced to do it i wonder if they thought she sounded weird like on the phone call yeah like i always wonder like if you were to call me like and do that when you were a teenager like would I pick up on the clue like that no but I mean maybe I would have believed it I know I feel like they did believe her because they 
call off the police. And if they didn't, they probably would have been like, no, that's weird. We're going to find her. But yeah, if I call you now, I if I call anyone now, I plan to like purposely sound weird, do things on purpose that I would not do or say. <laughs> so you should know. But obviously, Junko's she's 16. She's scared. So she just calls and she says what the boys want her to say. Hmm. You should have like a code word with your kids. Yeah. Oh, hey, if someone's forcing you to call, just, you know, say this word and we'll know you're in trouble. Yeah, that's a good idea. Like this word means danger. I've heard yeah. code words for kids. Um, like, yeah, like to come pick them up from, from a party yeah. or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, that's smart. I mean, nobody thinks they're going to be kidnapped, though, and then forced to no. say that they're fine. Exactly. Like, no one can plan on that. That's why it's good to have this knowledge that things like this can happen as much as you don't want to believe that they happen in this world. But Junko, she was a young girl finishing up high school in Masato, Satama Prefecture, Japan. I'm sure I'm going to say a lot of these things probably incorrectly, but I'm trying my best. And I tried to listen to how you say them and everything. There's just a lot. And this is an area just outside of Tokyo. Junko was a super smart girl who was heavily focused on her grades. Instead of drinking and partying, she was looking forward to college so that she could further her education. She had plans in her life and aspirations she intended to go forward with. She was just a really great kid to her parents, an obedient teenager who had that image of a good girl. She was popular with her peers, and many people were attracted to her intelligence as well as her beauty. She had been working part-time after school to save money for a graduation trip she wanted to take before moving on to another job and her college life. And she already had a job set up, so she had a job secured and all of that for when she graduated and was finishing up her education in college. Now, there are conflicting reports about if Junko knew one of these boys before her kidnapping or if she was unaware of who they were altogether. And honestly, neither side really gets clarified as the correct information. And because it's a Japanese case, I think it can be slightly harder to research. So most sources I could read in English just say this is conflicting information. Some believing Junko did know one of the boys and others believe that she did not know them at all. So it's said in some sources that Junko knew Hiroshi Miyano from school. Hiroshi would be deemed the leader of what is perpetrated onto Junko, and it's said that Hiroshi was the school bully at the same school Junko attended. He was already running around just being like a douche, threatening people, fighting with people, and scaring everyone by bragging about his ties to the Yakuza which, like we talked about earlier, is a Japanese gang, and people were scared of their violence. So Hiroshi was able to get most people to do what he wanted them to do, controlling them with the fear of retaliation by the Yakuza. And Hiroshi, he had his eyes set on Junko. He was so attracted to her, and he wanted to date her, so he goes out on a limb and asks her on a date, but she rejects him telling him that she doesn't want a boyfriend right now. She's focusing on her grades and her work, and she just really doesn't have the time. Which, really, she probably also thought he was a jerk and didn't want to be associated with the school bully. Now, Hiroshi couldn't accept this rejection. He always got what he wanted, and because of that, he sets up this plan to take, take Junko as he pleased, to rape her. On the other side of things, it said that Junko didn't know any of the men who attacked her that day. These were just bad guys who did have ties to the Yakuza and a history of gang rape. They had just gone out that day to the park waiting to spot the perfect victim for their next attack. But things go sideways with Junko compared to the other rapes they had committed, so it almost makes sense to me that Junko did know Hiroshi that he couldn't handle the hit to his pride and he wanted to keep her for himself. I'm not entirely sure, of course, since it's reported so conflicting through every source I found. Regardless, it's on November 25th, 1988, that Hiroshi Miyano and Nobuharu Minato are scouting out the area of Masato, Japan with the intention to rape a girl. 
Whether this was set up purposely by Hiroshi on the route Junko took home from work or if they just spotted a young girl they didn't know, it's about 8.30 p.m. that Junko passes them on her bike, riding home from her part-time job. Now the plan is in motion. Nobuharu runs up to Junko's bike and he just kicks it, knocking her off and onto the ground before starting to run off. It's at that same time that Hiroshi runs up to Junko, pretending that he has no idea who this guy was that just kicked her off her bike. So he starts yelling at the guy and he runs off like, hey, get out of here. What are you doing? He's helping Junko up off the ground and he's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that just happened to you. I'm so sorry. People are crazy. I have to walk you home and make sure you're okay. Well, Junko is officially freaked out. She's in shock. Like, who just kicks someone off their bike? Now, depending if you think Junko did know Hiroshi from school or if he was a complete stranger, she either took up his offer to walk her home because at least he was a familiar face regardless of him being a bully himself, or he was the saving grace, a stranger that helped chase off this guy who just attacked her. Either way, she's putting trust into Hiroshi. And as they start walking, Junko is trying to lead the way back to her house. But Hiroshi is like, no, I actually know the shortcut. Let's go this other way. And she follows. He was leading her to an abandoned warehouse, a place rumored to be connected to the Yakuza. And now she's scared. Hiroshi orders her inside where he rapes her. But he's not done. He's just not ready to let her go. Instead, he gets a hotel room nearby and uses threats to force her there to the room without her fight, fighting back or making a scene. Like, you know I have ties to the Yakuza, don't try to run, don't try to scream. Once Hiroshi and Junko are in the hotel room, he rapes her again before making a phone call to his three friends. Nobuharu Minato, the man who just kicked her off her bike, Yasushi Watanabe, and Joe Ogura. At this time, Hiroshi is 18 years old, Nobuharu is 16 years old, Joe is 18 years old, and Yasushi is 17 years old. On this phone call that Hiroshi makes, he's bragging like, hey, I've got this girl Junko and I raped her at the warehouse. Now I'm holding her at this hotel and I've been able to keep raping her. And instead of being horrified about their friend, they're proud of him. I mean, we could have expected that because all of these boys are disgusting. They had raped women before and Joe is like, oh man, I'm so jealous. Can you actually keep her around? And that way we can all take a turn with her. Ugh, they're disgusting. So disgusting. I can't even imagine. A, getting that phone call and then B, they're like, oh, sweet. Oh, and can we partake too? Like, I just don't get yeah. that about, but that's, again, shows my little bubble. Like, I do not get how other guys want to sleep with the same woman. Well, I don't even get, I, I've heard in another podcast, they were talking about something where it wasn't this case, it was some other case, but they were saying something about all these boys or men, like, watching porn together, and they were just like, I guess I don't understand, like, why do you want to watch porn with your friends? <laughs> and I feel the same, uh, like, what? Like, why are we doing this together? And I mean, I don't know. You do you if it's not like violent to anyone. But like, it, it is just weird how they can get in this mindset to like do things as a group. Especially right. like sexual things, sexual assault. Like, it seems that you should be embarrassed if you're sexually assaulting someone. It does. But like so often, these things happen in groups. But then I guess maybe... They think it's cool. Which is so wild to me. Like, your mind has to be on some other plane. Like, it is not in reality because that is not cool. <laughs> oh, no. I don't get it. Ugh. So, Hiroshi, he sits with that idea for a moment and decides it's a great idea. And around 3 a.m. the following day, Hiroshi guides Junko out of that hotel room and to a nearby park to meet his three friends. They rip Junko's backpack out of her hands and they start rummaging through it. It's inside that they find an envelope containing her home address and they use this to coerce her into compliance over the next few days until they have her in a position where she cannot escape. 
The boys say that if she does not do as they tell her, they will hand this envelope with her address on it over to the Yakuza gang members and order them to kill her entire family. It works. Junko is scared out of her mind. She had already been raped multiple times. She just couldn't put her family's lives at risk. So Hiroshi, Nobuharu, Joe, and Yasushi tell her that she's coming with them to the home of Nobuharu Minato, which is in Adachi, Tokyo. He lives there with his parents and his brother, so she better not try to pull anything fast on them. They're going to be introducing her to the Minatos as Hiroshi's girlfriend, and she complies. When they introduce her, she doesn't make a scene. She's too terrified to say anything, but yeah, I'm his girlfriend. Nice to meet you. I know. So she's introduced as his girlfriend, but through the time that Junko is in the Minato home, we do come to see that while they may have believed she was Hiroshi's girlfriend at first, they did in fact come to realize that this was not the case and that this young 16-year-old girl was being held captive by their son and his friends But they claim later that they were just too scared of their own son, 16-year-old Nobuharu Minato. They also knew he had ties to the Yakuza, and they feared that if they went against him, he would retaliate with them. They had seen his violence before in their own home, and they feared their own son would have them taken down by the Yakuza. But you know what? No, I don't feel bad for these parents because they had ample opportunity to help this girl and... They, I feel, are also semi-responsible for her death. Mm. It's so they, so so in the story they think that the parents figured it out that they were. Oh, they know because they say they were just too scared of Nobuharu. They were so. Once everything's like brought to light, it's not like they deny completely. Oh, we just thought. That it was Hiroshi's girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. It's more like, yeah, we came to realize that she was being held captive in our house, but we were too scared of our son. It's like, I really don't care that you're too scared of your son. I guess put your own life at risk. And instead of like the son 16, 16. Wow. And then his three friends are there every day. Like you're just letting your 16 year old son and his friends run your home. This when you need tough love as a parent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, sorry, but that girl, you can't keep her here. I'm calling the police. Like, right. I just, it, it makes no sense. It's crazy because she was there for a long time. How long? 44 days. 44 days? Oh, yeah. my goodness. So more than a month that well, she's I'm trying to figure out in this like, home. Did he really like her? I mean, obviously, but he obviously didn't because he had no feelings to do all that. But like, did he like her before and he was like trying to force her to be his? I don't. So again, like it's kind of he may she maybe knew him, maybe didn't. Literally every source is different. A lot of sources say that the same thing as I'm saying, like no one has clarified if he really knew her or if he didn't but if they did really know each other I mean he might have been attracted to her and wanted to go on a date with her but he really probably just wanted to have sex with her so now he's just forcing it yeah he Uh. clearly has no feelings of like care like that oh really makes I've wondered the same (laughs) is it nature versus nurture we've never decided it's probably a mixture of both but in some cases it might be just nature I don't know yeah anyway so Junko goes into this home and it's only two days after Junko is kidnapped that her parents head to that police station to report her as missing they're worried again because Junko never came home from work and initially the search is on people did find it really weird she never made it home from work and something is suspicious and these searches are what freak the four guys out because they don't want police to find Junko And that's why they forced Junko to make that phone call to her parents to tell them to call off the searches. And again, she does all of that because she was scared that these men would have their Yakuza gang kill her family if she did not comply. 
And with the missing persons report for Junko dropped, she's left to endure those 44 days of an actual living hell that none of you could be ready to hear about right now. So just warning that this is where I'm going to be getting into what happens to Junko. And yes, like we talk about these crimes often, we are always sickened and saddened to share what happened, which, you know, we do to spread awareness for what these victims went through. But I just know you are not even semi-prepared to hear something so terrible. This is the worst torture I have ever come across that I've personally researched. How did you get the details? Did the boys give it? They all recounted what happened. Okay. Yeah. So this comes from the four. I'm sure certain parts of their story were tied together where there's four of them where they could kind of see, you know, where the truth lied between those four stories. And yeah. there's more than just these four people that knew about it. So there's a lot of sources of information that end up playing into it. So with that, here we go. Within those first few days, Junko was repeatedly raped by the four guys, not only one-on-one, -on -one, but also gang raped. These four boys were also not the only predators to take advantage of Junko as she's being held hostage upstairs in the Monado's home. By day three, they're now inviting other friends and members of the Yakuza over to have their way with Junko. On November 28th, Hiroshi calls up Tetsuo Nakuama and Koichi Ihara over. As a group, all boys gang rape her after grabbing her. When they had grabbed a hold of her and she knew what would be happening, she had screamed, waking up Nobuharu's parents who did come to check on what had happened, only to be shooed away by Nobuharu, telling them that it was nothing. In the 44 days that Junko was being held in the Monado home against her will by Hiroshi, Nobuharu, Joe, and Yasushi, she was raped more than 500 times by more than 100 men in only 44 days. On average, that means she was raped around 11 times every day she was being held. Ugh. Yeah, that also means more than 100 people knew she was being held captive, raped, and tortured, but none of them tried to help her escape. They only were accomplices to this crime. More than 100 people. Like... That is bizarre. I know. That I was, is so many... Originally, they aren't allowing Junko to eat or drink anything. Withholding food from someone is a classic torture technique. I mean, they would give her milk and a little water just to keep her alive, but they decide to take it even further when they start forcing her to eat cockroaches while they watch and laugh. And even that wasn't enough for them. Soon, she was forced to drink her own urine, on top of being urinated on by the men who were assaulting her. This is usually followed by severe beatings that Junko in, is enduring daily. Eventually, they start using bamboo sticks when their hands become too sore. One of her worst beatings was when they decided to tie her up and hang her from the ceiling for the purpose of using her as their own personal punching bag. So they're like what beating her. In the world? Yeah. They're beating her so often that their hands are sore. They have to use another object. Like, why? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's just, and it's like, you don't know why. There's no reasonable explanation. There's not an explanation, yeah. Yeah. On top of this, they want to embarrass Junko. So the original four guys shave her pubic hair for her, and then they turn on loud music and demand her to dance for them completely naked. They also force her to masturbate in front of them, all of this to laugh at her, as well as to get them in the mood to rape her. This kind of stuff is happening daily, along with them sending, sending her outside in the night to sleep on the balcony in very cold temperatures. Now, things start to escalate as the days go on. The boys start to rape Junko with objects, both in her vagina and anus. They are inserting things like a metal rod, glass bottles, scissors, roasting sticks, and lit matches. But that's not the worst of it. 
They're dropping barbell weights onto Junko, dropping them onto her hands, breaking her fingernails, shattering her hands and fingers, and dropping them onto her stomach and pelvic region. This trauma results in Junko losing control of her bladder and her bowel movements, which only resulted in more beatings from Hiroshi, Nobuharu, Joe, and Yasushi because they're pissed when she defecates or urinates on the floor. But they are responsible for damaging the muscles in her stomach, leading to this loss of control. Sad. She probably just wanted to die. She did. I would. Yeah. She says that later on. And it's just... And you said that she had a baby in there? Uh, I don't think when she was kidnapped, but through all the rapes and her being there for 44 days, she must have been... Um, like freshly pregnant by the time she Ugh, dies. So sad. Yeah. And Junko, she's sick of being beat every time she has to go to the bathroom. And at one point she tries to crawl downstairs to use the bathroom, but it takes her over an hour because she can't stand. She has to slide her weak body across the floor and down the stairs. She just couldn't do that every day. And the boys, they start inserting fireworks into her rectum and then they would light them and the fireworks would actually go off inside her causing severe severe burns leaving her in an insane amount of pain only to be raped repeatedly afterwards so what yeah you can't even i think wrap your mind around that kind of pain to be like burned and then assaulted still after having these really severe burns. Now, another item inserted into Junko was a light bulb that had been heated up. It's then placed inside of her and they start punching her in the stomach until the light bulb shatters inside of her. Oh my gosh. I do not. I know. I I told you it is like, can these people even like watch this? I know. It's like, you cannot wrap your mind around this case. So evil. That's why it stuck with me the first time I heard it, because I was just like, what is happening? Like, how can someone even do this, let alone a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old, and two 18-year-olds that are like, Ugh. they're all like high school age? I it, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. Junko's breasts were also very mutilated. First, they had started by using sewing needles to just puncture the breast area, and then they used these needles to pierce through her nipple. Ultimately, when she's found, it's determined that one of her nipples was completely ripped off with a pair of pliers. Oh, my God. I can't even, I don't even have words for it. The, all this torture was at the house? Yeah. At the house of where they live, Nobuharu's parents? parents and brother. So they knew. They had to have heard it. Exactly. They knew. And they don't even deny that they knew once it all comes together. So, you know, I don't, they, I'm sure they denied knowing how bad it was, but they knew that girl was there being raped and held captive, not being allowed she to leave. She had to have screamed in pain. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So they knew. They knew. And that's why I feel that they're partly responsible for her death as much as the boys are almost because they allowed it to happen just saying they're scared of their kid like I don't care Mm. don't sacrifice a young girl who you don't even know to save your own life yeah and all of this abuse it causes Junko to have severe organ damage of course she can't even really eat or drink the food that they do try to give her She's immediately throwing up. She's malnourished, so she's weak, and she's falling in and out of consciousness. Now, remember how they had a bunch of guys coming over from the Yakuza to rape Junko? One of these boys comes, and he's shocked by the condition that Junko is in. Her face is swollen, bruised. Her body is covered in bruises and burns. He can tell that this is something evil. But the other boys start making fun of him now. They're like, wow, you're such a loser. You can't rape this girl. Like, how lame? So he gives in. He participates in raping Junko. 
But then he goes home and he's the only person who participated in these rapes who had a sliver of remorse or a second thought after leaving. He started to become so distraught by what had happened that he confides in his brother, telling him the story. His brother is mortified. Mortified. His brother is mortified, obviously, and rushes to his parents, who call the police to tell them there is a girl being held hostage in the home of their son's friend. She needs help. Well, it's like he, this boy probably noticed she was close to death. She's burned. She's beaten. She doesn't even look like a human. Like she's so mutilated. But then you know, he gives in to the peer pressure. I don't know. Like, I think it's wrong that he participated at all. So, like, I do yeah, blame yeah. him in a way. I'm glad he left at least and did tell someone so that something could be possibly done. But unfortunately, it doesn't save Junko. It's 16 days into her captivity that police head on over to check out that call. Two officers knock on the door and they're met by the parents of Nobuharu Minato. Now, they full well know this girl is upstairs in their house being severely abused. They had heard her cries. They could hear the torture. But they say, what? We have no idea what you're talking about. Should I grab our sons to see if they know what you're talking about? And the two Monado sons are called downstairs to be asked about a girl being held in this house and assaulted. But the boys say the same thing as the parents. Like, nope, we have no idea what you're talking about. Monado's brother says, you can come inside and look around. You're welcome to check out the home. I don't know how much Nobuharu, Monado's brother, knew. It seems that he wasn't really participating in all of this, but then it also seems that he had pretty good knowledge of what was going on. So I don't know if he said, you can come inside and look around because he knows that will make the police believe him. Or if it's kind of his own subtle way of being like, yeah, you can come in and look. Hoping that yeah. the police will find her. I don't know. But the police are like, you know what? We're good. We believe you. Because who would offer for us to come inside if this rumor was true? And with that, they leave the home and Junko is not saved. They don't look at all. Oh, Isn't that frustrating? Not a good decision. They should have gone and looked. Uh, yeah. And thankfully, they do actually, They later on, those two officers are fired because they, mm. it's believed that they could have saved Junko's n- life. And it it's not protocol to just not go inside because someone tells you you can. Like, it's protocol to still go look. So, thankfully, when all of this is discovered, those officers are fired. I can't believe that this was only 16 days in. And she was there for 44 days. How did she even survive that long? It's sad because I feel like she had this will to live and fight for herself. As her time progresses in the Monado home, she does start to smell like her body was rotting. And this is because she has these severe untreated burns and wounds. And she was being urinated on and forced to live in her own waste. She was mutilated so badly that her face and body no longer looked recognizable in any way. She's barely looking human. So now the boys say that they're losing sexual interest in her, which I'm like, screw you. Like, you have no right to her in the first place. And like, you're also the reason that she is in such a bad condition. And now they, you know, they're being really rude to her about it. By what you've done. Yeah. To her. It's like, oh, I could smack them and more. These guys are like the scum of the earth. So they decide that since they no longer want to have sex with Junko, they now need to find another girl to rape. And this is when they rape that 19-year-old woman from the beginning of this story. The one who is demanding the police to find the boys that did this to her so that they can face their consequences. They committed this rape in December of 1988. Junko had been kidnapped the end of November. And so by December... I don't know if it's at the beginning or the end, but they decide, okay, we're going to rape this other girl. And they rape her, which is devastating. But I'm really, really grateful to her that she continued to pressure the police to find who did this to her because that's how they ultimately find Junko. So where did her rape take place? 
Junko or the 19-year-old girl? The 19-year-old. Just at a park there nearby. They Mm -hmm. didn't take her to the house or anything? No. Maybe that warehouse that they had used in the very beginning of Junko where they led her to that abandoned warehouse. But they had come across her in a park just on her way home from work as well. Okay. Now, by this point, Junko is begging for them to kill her. She tells them there's no use for her anymore. They don't want to have sex with her. She's in pain. Just show her this sliver of mercy and remove her from her misery. But they deny her this. They might not have a sexual use for her anymore, but they are using her for their entertainment. Not sad that she got to the point where she just wanted to die. Like that was better than what she was going through. Oh, yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah. I would. I mean, she has broken fingers. Get me out of this misery. How could she even heal? Even if she did live from all that trauma emotionally, physically. Yeah. Junko knows at this point that she needs to get out of here. And she makes her break for it when she spots a phone left unattended in the room. She crawls to it and dials 911. But one of the boys sees this happening before the dispatcher answers. And he grabs the phone from her to tell her that to tell the person on the other end of the call that it was just a butt dial, an accidental call. No need for police help over here. Sorry about that. Now, Junko has to pay for this escape attempt. They had to scare her again. Hiroshi, Nobuharu, Joe, and Yasushi grab lighter fluid, pouring her pouring it all across Junko's legs and they set her on fire. She's panicking and screaming, of course, before her body shuts itself down due to the intense pain of not only being on fire, but she's on fire on top of all these other wounds she has. And so she starts to have these convulsions. She's seizing it on the floor. So the boys, they set the fire out telling themselves that Junko's faking these convulsions. And I think they just wanted to tell themselves she was faking in order to give each other, in their mind, a valid reason to set her on fire a second time. They put the fire out. She comes back too. They tell her she's a faker. And they pour more lighter fluid onto Junko, setting her on fire for the second time. While she is on fire this time, they insert multiple glass bottles into her anus They're putting them in one after another, basically stacking them. And many of them are starting to burst. This is where the shattered glass comes from that is found during examination of her body. So this shattered glass is found in her post-mortem when they find her. Like, were they trying to kill her? I don't know. Like, obviously, if you know you're going to do that, like, that's going to kill somebody. You can't like rupture their intestines and them get infected everywhere in their body yeah. and expect them to live. They sound like a bunch of dumbasses. I'm so pissed at them right now. <laughs> I hope Japan has the death penalty. Oh, the end will make you even more mad. So it, it is. In, oh. This is such an infuriating oh. and disgusting case. I agree with you. They are. I've got to stop listening right now because I'm so I know. angry. When I was. Like, they're stupid. Like, I mean, how how did she survive that long? I don't understand. I don't either. She was just, like, strong and had this will to live. I, like, try to be empathetic and, like, be, like, like, try to fill something for murders. But them, no. Like, that they should die. Hopefully they did die. Yeah, that Rotten Mango podcast where I very (laughs) first heard this on, she kind of said the same thing where she's like, a lot of times I can understand the motive not that you agree with the motive but you can see like the background someone came from or like all these things that led to this or it's a crime of passion or like not that you agree not that you condone you just you almost can understand it in your mind and know why it's so bad but this she said the same thing it's like you cannot wrap your mind around it it makes no sense there's no empathy for these people at all like they no, are because you know they weren't tortured like this from no. their family they like even if they were abused they weren't abused like no this. they sound like just a bunch of entitled little brats to me thinking that they can take what they want they're in this gang they think they're like hot shit and they're not <laughs> like i hate them too Ugh. now 
she actually doesn't die right away from this. Can you imagine the severe pain? That Literally she's in? living after this with glass shards all throughout her insides. I can't even imagine. I can't handle. No, they're like all on her intestines. Yeah, it, first. I don't think anyone alive on this earth today could understand that pain. Like, that's just something that is too much for me to handle, even thinking about. So eventually, January 4th, 1989 comes, and Hiroshi decides to challenge Junko to a game of Mahjong. And this is a card game based on skill, strategy, and luck. She agrees only because obviously she has no option. If she didn't play, they would just torture her more. So she starts to play. And like, think about this. She is playing this card game with these boys who are torturing her. Her fingers and bones in her hand are shattered. So her fingers and hands are broken while she's playing this card game. She's sitting there with glass glass shards on the inside of her, burns on her legs. And she has to sit there and play this game with these (laughs) a-holes. Well, she ends up going on in the game and she wins so she wins all of them because they're stupid and she's exactly smart. exactly now this sends them into hysterics because again their pride is all hurt and they start to beat junko but she has infections and open wounds all over her body so now they're getting grossed out when they punch her because they're getting pus all over their hands And they don't want to stop beating her up, so they just cover their hands with plastic bags and continue on. Now they tape candles onto Junko's eyes that they light, leaving the hot wax to melt and burn her face and eyelids. Through hours of abuse, Junko is convulsing. Her body is in the most severe state of trauma. She's bleeding from her face and various other wounds. And the more she loses consciousness, the angrier these four monsters get. So they set her on fire again. I'm like so glad that our bodies, like our brains are smart. And like, I bet she just shut down and didn't know what was going on. That wouldn't be able to remember Like when it. she'd go just, into these convulsions. Like our bodies are smart. In that yeah. Way. Yeah. Do not tell me they prosecuted them as minors. There's like so much up and down. (laughs) We'll get to it. But they, Japan didn't do their best. You know, I like to know the end of the story. I know. Before. And I will warn everyone (laughs) Japan did not do their best work here, but uh, I hope they learn their lesson. Now, because they set her on fire again, Junko is fully, at this point, she's actually fully aware. She's patting down her own body, trying to put out the flames, but her body is so weak and eventually she does stop fighting altogether. She had fought for her life through 44 days of intense torture that very likely could have killed her at any point, but she was mentally strong. She had that will to live, but this was her last straw. She couldn't take another moment. So as Junko's efforts to put out the fire stopped and she loses consciousness again, The four boys put out the fire themselves, and then they leave Junko alone, who slowly drifts into her death and succumb to her injuries. It's Nobuharu's brother, who also lived in that home, that called the following day, telling Nobuharu that Junko looked to be dead. He calls the brother? Why why don't you call 911? That's kind of what leads me to believe, like, you knew something was going on. He knew? Yeah. And so the boys, they rush to the Monado home. And they wrap Junko's body up in blankets and shove her into a bag so that they can get her out of the room and out of the home. They rush to purchase a 55-gallon drum barrel, putting Junko's body inside and filling it with wet concrete. They thought they were really smart, like she would never be found, all of this stuff. But really, the concrete kind of preserved her. So when she is found and the concrete's removed, she's almost in the same uh, state State. yeah, that she was in when she died. So they were able to fully view all these injuries. And by 8 p.m. that night, the barrel is dumped onto a cement truck. This truck is used to transport these drums, but it was just parked. It didn't look like it was going to be moved anytime soon. And they were right. 
The barrel sat there unnoticed by the company or anyone else until Hiroshi finally tells police to search for a barrel on that truck in Kodo, Tokyo. They also disposed of videotape containing the final episode of Tonbo. This is a show that Junko had expressed to them she really wanted to see the finale of, but because she was captured, she wasn't able to. So when they get rid of her body, Hiroshi places this with her. And he says it's not because he felt bad for her or bad for what he did. It was because, quote, he did not want her to return as a ghost and haunt him. <laughs> like, okay, you putting that d- that videotape there means nothing to her. She no. could care less. But it also does make me think that they probably did know each other before. Yeah. Why would he leave her like a little memento? Yeah, he's like leaving or something. Why, when they gang rape women all the time, would they just keep Junko? All this stuff. So he does that so that she won't haunt him, which is just so just the stupidest thing I've ever heard because she'll haunt you either way. All of this brings us back to the beginning of this case where we started when Joe Ogura and Hiroshi Miyano are brought in for questioning about the rape of that 19-year-old woman. And Hiroshi ends up confessing to the murder of Junko Furuda. When Junko's family is notified, they're devastated. Feelings of guilt and shame overcome them, wondering if they had just kept searching for their daughter, would she be alive today? But they could have never known the circumstances behind Junko's call. They couldn't even grasp the idea of a world where this kind of evil existed until they got that fateful call and learned the fate of Junko. Her mom was so distraught by the information and details behind her daughter's death that she had to be committed to psychiatric treatment where she tried to recover from the devastation. So she just could not handle what had happened. I think I'd be there right there along with her. Mm -hmm. Yep. By April of 1989, all four boys are arrested for the murder of Junko. However, the court deemed them as juveniles, stating that they would not release the names of the perpetrators. And I mean, two of them are underage. Yasushi's 17, Nobuharu is 16, but Joe and Hiroshi are 18. Well, that's the age they all were at the time of the crime. And overall, the boys, I feel they were all plenty old enough to know that this was wrong. And at 16, 17, when you torture and murder someone this badly, you can be seen as an adult. They know this was illegal, immoral, and disturbing. So I applaud the Shukan Bunsun magazine, who was able to dig up the names of the four murderers and rapists, and they publish the names in their magazine. They don't care that it was technically against the law to publish these names. They don't care about the punishment they may face for doing so, stating that the accused did not deserve to have their names kept anonymous because anyone who can do what they did is not human. And I'm like, no, yeah. And the public needs to be warned. Exactly. So that magazine did everyone in Japan a solid when they were like, you know what? We'll find out the names ourselves, and we're going to share them. Originally, all four men were going to be sentenced through the juvenile court system, but because of public outrage, it was decided that they would be tried as adults, which is a relief, right? Like All of them? Yeah. So now they're going to be tried as adults. They can get a real sentence. They can spend the rest of their lives in prison. But in July of 1990, Hiroshi Miyano was sentenced to only 17 years in prison. Nobuharu Minato was sentenced to four to six years in prison. Yasushi Watanabe was sentenced to three to four years in prison. And Joe Ogura was sentenced to eight years in a juvenile prison. How? Uh, Yeah. Those don't even make sense. Oh, people were pissed in japan like uh, yeah pissed well you don't want these because four predators out roman in public no four to six four years three. yeah and then nobu haru it was in his home i mean he was 16 but four to six years three to For four watching years like that torture and keeping her hostage in your home like did these boys sleep there every night were you the one 
Nobuharu sitting at home with her every night, forcing her to stay inside. Like, four to six years? That is ridiculous. Yeah. People are really mad. And during prison, three of the men appeal their sentences. Hiroshi, Nobuharu, and Yasushi. But Judge Ryuji Yanis with the Tokyo High Court doesn't appreciate these appeals for sentences that were already far too lenient for such a heinous crime. Instead of approving the appeals, this judge makes these sentences higher. He takes Hiroshi's sentence from 17 years up to 20 years. So it's not a lot more, but (laughs) I'm glad they didn't get the appeal and at least got like a little more. Like, he's like, no, do not appeal this. I mean, he's probably pissed because he's probably thinking, why are you appealing your case? You got no time. Yeah. And you did one of the worst things Japan has ever seen, like, violent crime-wise. I'm, like, disgusted by it. Like, I, the death penalty to those boys, torture them. Oh. Like, let them know how it feels. And I don't usually feel that way. (laughs) I know. But, like, these people deserve that. Like, they should feel that. Ugh. Because they... Are they out? They're out now because this was in the 80s. They're out. They're yeah, out. They are all out. Yep. So, Nobuharu, he appealed his sentence, and it was upped from four to six years to five to nine years. And then Yasushi's was taken from three to four years up to five to seven years. And the sentences, they're still far too light, but at least there was some time added, like I said. And Hiroshi's parents were ordered by civil court to pay the equivalent of $425,000 U.S. dollars, the equivalent of $425,000 U.S. dollars. And this was in compensation to Junko's family. They had to sell their family home for the money, but I heard it rumored that it was never actually paid to Junko's family. We know civil court cases a lot of the time don't actually get paid out. Take O.J. Simpson, for example, who in civil court now for the third time has been deemed to be responsible for the death of Ron Goldman and Nicole. This happens if it can happen to someone as like if someone as high profile as O.J. can get away with not paying where people know he has money, where he is like living the high life still and he can get away with not paying, it's not shocking to me that Junko's family most likely did not really get compensated. And And that's not going to help. I listened to Kim Goldman at CrimeCon talk about how they've done the civil suits towards OJ, and she says, like, the money means nothing, but going to court and proving that he did this over and over, because they can, like, re-up their, like, civil suit every so often if he doesn't pay and it adds on money she's like it doesn't change anything but it helps to know that like other people agree he did do this Mm -hmm. after being denied parole in 2004 hiroshi was released in 2009 it seems that he's continued his life involved in organized crime he lives lavish he throws around money he drives around nice cars and he shows no remorse for taking junko's life He changed his name to Hiroshi Yokoyama, and sometime after being released, he was re-arrested on fraud charges, but later released due to insufficient evidence. So he was released in 2009. Mm -hmm. So was he like, was that after the 20 years? So 38? So yeah, he's released exactly 20 years after, and he was... 18 at least at the time of the crime so i don't know if he was 18 or 19 yeah. by the time he's sentenced but yeah so he's 38 39 so he's like around 50 now yeah now today so yeah. by the time he's released he had a full-on life to live still yeah and he is driving around cars still doing crime like it's sickening it, that it really is. he could just get away with it so Nobuharu Minato was released after his five to nine year sentence and moved back in with his mom, changing his name to Sinji Minato. A civil suit was won by Junko's parents against the Minatos as the crime was committed inside their home. And I'm not sure if they actually paid the money or not. In 2018, Nobuharu Minato, now Sinji, was rearrested for the attempted murder of a 32 year old man who he got in an argument with. 
He had beaten this guy with a metal rod and slashed his throat with a knife. But when he's arrested, he's like, this is absurd, saying, quote, I certainly stabbed and beat him, but I did not intend to kill him. <laughs> oh, but you slashed his throat? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's intent to kill. Joe Ogura served his eight years in juvie and was released in August of 1999. He changed his name to Joe Kamisaku, and this is the family name of someone who was a supporter of his, which, ew, hate that. Mm. He has never stopped boasting about his role in Junko's murder, and in July of 2004, he was rearrested for attacking a man named Takoto Shi in Isano. This was his girlfriend's friend, who Joe believed was coming on to his girl. So Joe tracks this guy down, beats him, and forces his, forces him into his truck. He then drives this guy from Adachi, Tokyo, to his mother's bar in Masato, keeping Takatoshi there for hours while he beats him. Joe told this guy that he would kill him because he had killed before, and now he knows how to get away with it. Joe's mom is rumored to have vandalized Junko's grave, stating that she did this because Junko ruined her son's life. Oh. And I say rumored because oh, it's alleged a and I don't want to, yep, I don't want to get in trouble for saying it happened, but I, I've seen that it pretty much happened and is pretty much proven, but mm -hmm. you know, that allegedly happened, which is just disgusting. Don't entitle your son even further that she ruined his life hold him accountable i i freaking hate people like this <laughs> i freaking hate them like i really do who so <laughs> joe's family was also ordered to pay restitution to junko's family but joe's family sucks they all suck but th it's said that joe actually used all the money and depleted it so it was never paid because they just let joe use it instead Oh, I'm sure. It's just sickening. It is so, sickening, but, you know, those guys, they'll get what's coming to them. Yeah. If not yes, in this life, in the next. But the sad thing is, is there going to be other victims out there? That, uh, well, that yeah, ruined? all three of them. Ha well, three of them. The only person who hasn't been rearrested is Yasushi. And, I mean, Hiroshi's rearrest wasn't for a violent crime. It was for, you know, fraud. But... He's still participating in the gang. I'm sure he is still violent. And then the other two are full on rearrested for attempted murder. Mm -hmm. Like these are bad people. And I do believe that regardless of their rearrest, they are all free today. Junko Furuta was celebrated during her funeral on April 2nd, 1989. The job Junko had secured for after high school gave her parents the uniform she would have been wearing. Her family knew she was excited for this position, so the uniform was buried with her. At her funeral, her friend spoke and said, quote, Welcome back. I have never imagined that we would see you again in this way. You must have been in so much pain, so much suffering. The happy we all made for the school festival looked really good on you. We will never forget you. I have heard that the principal has presented you with a graduation certificate, so we graduated together, all of us. One Chan, there is no more pain, no more suffering. Please rest in peace. appreciate the listen. Please share with your friends and family. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. My co-host is Alicia Jenkins and our palate cleanser giver is Charlie Waters. Our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Find us on all our social medias, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and more. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters and today I'm going to be talking about Dress. Did you know that when my dad was in Africa, he took a picture of a giraffe for me? He also took a video, and giraffes run so weird. Did you know a giraffe's heart is two feet long because of its long neck? Their hearts are bigger than my little sister. Bye! I'm excited uh, to talk to you next week.
Okay, guys, I found an organization that is dedicated to advocating for the rights of women over in Japan. Um, you probably know that Japan is deeply rooted in cultural to tr- this cultural tradition of family and family's interests come first. They, you know, take on the responsibility of their families regardless of the situations they're in. And unfortunately, domestic violence has been steadily rising over the past 16 years. This is tearing Japanese families apart part in these really big ways and issues of domestic violence are not very often discussed there. So Women's Net Saya Saya WNSS is dedicated to the women and children in Japan, in Japan who have experienced domestic violence. They ranked 110 of 149 countries in the World Economic Forum's 2018 Gender Equality Rankings. The battle uphill can be a long one for victims driven into desperate circumstances. You can visit their website, saya-saya.net, S-A-Y-A-S-A-Y-A dot N-E-T. And there you can learn about their mission, what they do, different facts about domestic violence, and what they provide, the programs they have to support abused women and children.